0: Uh, thank you, thank you, Edmund. Uh, a word of apology first. I understand from t- at least two or three people that we normally sing the pin School hymn, which is for all the saints. And I think what's happened is that those people who know we do that know it so well that they've assumed it's happening, and those of us who didn't know it was meant to be happening at all didn't know because we didn't find out. So we've decided that afterwards, downstairs, when we're having lunch, we'll sing the hymn, won't we? Bless you, Etta. Thank you for your graciousness. It's great to have the members of the Mofansipin Foundation with us again today. Most of us, of course, will not have gone to the Mofansipin School, but remembering our upbringing gives all of us an opportunity to give thanks for those who have had an influence for good on our lives. Those for whom, in a sense, we are their legacy and that's our theme today a spiritual stock take to work out how we are doing in terms of legacy leaving and particularly spiritual legacy leaving uh, i've been away uh, with my other colleagues this week we've been at i've been at two conferences this week and the second one i was speaking uh, to the salvation army staff and officers of great britain at a conference center in Derbyshire called Swanwick, which I used to live very near to, but I haven't been for months and months. I always used to joke with people in the car that I could tell you what we were gonna have for lunch by the day of the week, but they've changed the menu. Uh, I met there a number of people that I knew, and, and I shared this story with some trepidation because it's too easy to get the wrong impression of why I'm telling it. But one of the times that God spoke clearest in the whole of my life happened at Swanwick. And it happened in the very room that I walked into this Thursday, Friday, uh, which I haven't been into for a number of years, the room. And it was when I had become the president of the Methodist Conference, having spent what was then 12 years at Cliff College, mainly leading courses in mission and evangelism and preaching and other things like that and over the 12 years I think I estimate I took through as it were about 350 students doing masters courses and about 7 or 8 people doing research and doctoral degrees. Uh, and then I became the president of the Methodist Conference, which is a one-year thing, and it almost matches an academic year, so I just left all my books on the shelves and wrote a few more sermons, and at the Methodist Conference in July, I shut up my uh, office in Cliff College and went on my, on my trip. And I kept just three or four things in the diary that I'd had before I had ever knew I was going to be elected the president. And one of those was to go to Swanwick Conference Centre and speak at the meeting of the Church of England and the Methodist and the URC Missioners Conference. It was in October. What I didn't know when I would put it in the diary a year, 18 months previously was that about three, four weeks prior to this conference, the Methodist Church was looking for the next general secretary. And so I was encouraged to apply, and I applied, and I was appointed to that post, and no one knew about it because it wasn't able to be released at that time, on the Tuesday when I went to take this conference on the Friday. So I knew it, and no one else did apart from the interviewing panel. I have to tell you that as soon as I'd said, yes, I will do that, I got enormous cold feet. Have I done the right thing? What will happen now that I'm not going back to Cliff College? Have I been misled? Am I, I was really in, in a kind of quandary in my soul. And I was saying my prayers over those three days, Lord, give me a, some sort of sign that I've done right because it's not too late to give backward. And because Swanwick was 34 minutes away from my house, and I'd made the trip so often I could time it, and I knew I wasn't speaking till 11 o'clock, I left about 37 minutes to get there, always on the last push. So I got in my car and went there, and unfortunately got behind a milk float. And it was so as was even a bit nearer the bone and the time that and the person who was running the conference, who is now the Bishop of Liverpool, Paul Bays, was stomping up and down the room, looking at his watch. And as I pulled up in the car, a palpable look of relief came over his face. He said, thank goodness you've turned up. I thought I was going to have to do it myself. And I followed him into this room where they were watching a video just about to start the session. The lights were down. I went to the front. I got my paper out. Paul Bayes, still with the lights down, came to the podium. He said, everybody, he will be delighted to know our next speaker has arrived, just. Uh, and uh, most of you that might know, this is Martin Atkins, who's the president of the Methodist Conference. And I got there, got my paper out, and the lights came up. And for the first time, I saw the 130, 40, 50 people in front of me. And in a split second, I took them in and was completely overwhelmed because at least a third, possibly even more than a third, of the missioners in the room working for the Methodist and the Church of England and the URC Church had been my students over the previous 12 years. And in that split second, God said to me, this is your legacy. Now move on. Now I don't tell that story for personal pride because it reduced me to tears. It was for me in a kind of am I doing right time a way in which God gave me assurance. But I tell it to point out how wonderful and significant it is to become aware however that awareness happens that you have been involved in the development, the vocation, the faith journey of other people. How significant it is to be involved in legacy making. We're going to be using this passage in Romans if you want to keep an eye on it. And I just want to raise from this passage that Atto read from us for us just several phrases that Paul uses in this epistle. First, Paul writes, I thank my God for you. Isn't it wonderful when you can thank God for people? You think of them, and just thinking about them, you smile, your heart becomes a little lighter, you feel a little bit more confident, you resolve to be a better human being, you get a lift. Parents... Teachers, workmates, friends, relatives, strangers. Now, when we're doing this stock take, to what extent do you think can people give thanks for us? The first thing Paul writes to this church is I thank God for you. Now, of course, he's talking at that time generically about the congregation. In this church in Rome. How marvelous it would be to have people say, I thank God for you, the people and the congregation of Methodist Central Hall Westminster. And to experience that must drive and continue to drive our ministry and our mission, our service, what we choose to do, what we choose not to do, our caring, our sharing, our life together. But our church family is only the sum of each one of us, individuals together collectively becoming a family of faith. So are people's experiences of us as individuals too thankworthy in our families because of the role that we have and we strive to exercise it well at our place of work? To strangers and neighbors alike? Can people give thanks with good cause for us because we do what we say we'll do and we do it as well as we can? But we've not got to the right reading of the sentence yet. Paul writes I give thanks to you for your faith. And it was not the wealth of the Roman Christians. It wasn't their power, their fine clothes, their cars, their large businesses, their beautiful homes, their princely entertainments, which were proclaimed everywhere. It was their authentic living faith that bore testimony to God in Jesus Christ that has Paul saying, this is what I thank God for. So when we're taking the spiritual stocktake, we must ask ourselves that gritty question, how many people have just cause to give thanks because of our faith in Jesus Christ? Paul says, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Do we genuinely pray for people? I know folk who set their alarm clock early each day and spend time in prayer before they do anything else while the rest of us and most of us lie in bed. And when we do pray, how much of our praying is self-directed, Lord, you know what I need today, And, and how much of it is for other people? liturgically in the early church that's let's say in round figures the first 150 years of the Christian era only two things constantly figured in early Christian worship wherever it took place and when everything extraneous was stripped away only two things remained the first was that it consisted of the Eucharist the communion of bread and wine which we'll celebrate later in this service And the second element that was always present in the early church was what? A sermon? No. An offering? No. It was prayers for others. Other Christians, other souls, other situations. Someone told me some time ago of a a great Methodist, a one-time president of the Methodist Conference, Raymond George. He was uh, an academic throughout his life. He was uh, trained ministers in three or four training institutions over his long ministry. And a minister asked to come and see him about some problem or other, and Raymond and this minister spent time together. And the minister returned home, no doubt encouraged. No one quite knows what the content of the conversation was. But a year later, the minister received a letter and it was from Mr. George. Dear brother, you may recall we met and talked through some issues of your life and I said I would pray for you. It's a year since that congregation and I write now to inquire whether I can remove you from my prayer list. What's our praying for others like in our spiritual stocktake? Paul writes that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I used to visit an old couple, small house, not much in the way of possessions, but to visit them was a real joy. In fact, out of the people that I visited, this is when I was in Shipley and Saltaire back in the dark ages of the 1980s, I used to, if I was particularly down, go and visit them. They were both in their late 80s, and the minute that you got there, you felt better. I don't think that was the point of the exercise, but you did. And then I used to visit a slightly younger couple in their home, and I always used to visit them to get it out of the way because it was always traumatic. The difference was that the older couple were encouraging, they urged you on, they were interested, they enthused gratitude and thankfulness, and the other couple, from the moment you walked through the door, constantly whinged and complained. Nothing was right, nobody was good enough, things were getting bad and getting worse. Do you know who received the most visitors in their times of need? Who do you... Encourage by your faith? And the other side of this is, how do we recognize our debt to others? And have we told them? I think I've mentioned before that when I became a Christian at the age of 17, which for me was quite a a sort of dramatic thing, it needn't be, it just happened like that for me. But one of the things I then wanted to do within weeks of that was to go back to Otley Methodist Church where I'd been a member of the Sunday school until around about 10 and go back to my Sunday school teacher who I've got fond memories of called Mr. Bell. He was short, pretty dumpy, balding and wore glasses. A sort of slightly more benign version of Captain Mannering. And I went down specifically on Sunday morning to seek him out. I knew he'd be an old man, only to find that he died only three months before. And I was really, really upset. Because I wanted to tell him that all his time with four renegade boys in Otley Methodist Sunday School wasn't actually wasted. And I couldn't. I never got to tell him, I hope he knows, but wouldn't it have been great if I could have told him when he was around? It's like Mike and the Mechanics in that great song, The Living Years said, I wish I could have told him in the living years. Now today we've got the Mephansipim connection of our debt to other people and writ large in our own lives there'll be other examples. And I urge you, if you forget all else out of this meandering sermon this morning, if there is still time, if the person is there to be told on the telephone or in this church or somewhere else, even today, before they disappear or we disappear, why don't you contact them and say, do you know what an encouragement you've been to me? I desire, says Paul, to reap some harvest among you. This idea of producing a harvest, I'll come among you in order that together we can. Are we passing on the baton? Are we sharing knowledge and faith and gifts? People in Methodism rather romantically lament the passing of the class system in its proper form. It probably didn't last as long as we thought it did, but where it worked well, it worked brilliantly. And one of the things that it did do was that it built in the idea that more mature Christians helped younger Christians in their faith journey. There was almost a kind of built-in mentoring that men who were in classes would be given younger men in order to teach by role model and example what they called rather quaintly in the interwar years, muscular Christianity. One minister said to me recently when he went to a new appointment, my focus is going to change now, Martin, I'm getting older. I used to try and do it all myself. Now I think my task is to encourage and facilitate those who are younger than I am. What sort of mentors are we? Are we passing on the legacy? Or are we just holding to ourselves what we know and saying, you'll just have to discover it if you can or if you will? Are we generous about what God has taught us and enabling others? I don't mean ramming it down their throats. Or is it all precious? That sort of church version of a competitive industry or workplace where basically ignorance or the fact that somebody doesn't know is your advantage, and therefore you don't share it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, writes Paul in conclusion. Those who know the love of God in Christ have an obligation to declare that to others, not to ram it down their throats, but to find a way of speaking the gracious and right word in an appropriate way in the right time. A friend of mine who worked for the local council decided that he had a gift of evangelism, and he said, this is a joke, but it's not a joke, it's true, but what I mean is it's comical because sometimes my comical lines don't go down very well in this church. But he genuinely said to me, he said, Do you know, Mark, I was so good at sharing the gospel that after six months, none of my workmates would get in the van with me. (laughs) But there are ways. The kindly note. The offer of prayer, either at the time or later or both. The reference to our own faith brought gently into a conversation. The readiness to engage with those openings that people, so many still searching for something that makes sense in their complicated lives, they just occasionally give us, rather than ignore them, we just take them and speak into them. Or are we ashamed of the gospel? Do we act in such a way that Christ has good cause to be ashamed of us? Funerals are interesting things, aren't they? Whenever I go to a funeral, I remember a sign that I first saw on a ward when Helen was training to be a midwife, and I, I was waiting outside the ward to pick her up. This was in the very early days of our marriage, uh, and I couldn't go in the ward, but I noticed that on the ward window, uh, the hospital where she was, it was in Withington in Manchester, somebody had written a sort of, you know how they put notices on the wall, it said, the first 10 minutes of life are among the most dangerous. And somebody in blue felt-tip pen had put underneath the last 10 ain't so hot either. (laughs) Funerals. My son listened to another string of eulogies of some famous person dying recently. And then he sat there and he said, Seems that nobody but brilliant, wonderful people ever die. They're always a wonderful mother, or had a fantastic sense of humour, or they were patient to the last. Clearly, Dad, the dour, self, uh, self-serving scoundrels never die. But it's true. We all find wonderful things to say at the end, and there's many a sort of exaggeration of grace through gritted teeth being said over a gravestone. But wouldn't it be marvelous if at our own funerals those wonderful things were fully true? And our legacy was that those who knew us had just cause to be thankful for us and for our faith in Jesus Christ. That our praying for others was real, not empty promises that we had so lived our lives that we'd been encouragers not discouragers that we mentored and cared for those who came after us passing on the best of what we knew and believed and aiming to enrich rather than denude other people's lives that it could be truly said of us they were not ashamed of the gospel of jesus christ and they found ways to share that goodness with other people that would be quite a funeral service wouldn't it when you're taking a spiritual stock take and wondering about what legacy you leave amen